Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2016 film Hell or High Water. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Good morning. Uh, Baird, this was really fun uh, to watch in light of other things that we've watched. Um, you know, this you you like to put together little runs of films and and uh, think about them uh, in conversation with each other. And I think uh this is this talks to so much that we've seen um both in terms of thinking about this as a kind of bank robbery crime film also thinking about this as a western there's there's a lot to uh to uh to play with here so uh maybe let's just start with what is your history with this film did you is this a film you saw in 2016 because i know yeah. this was um this was a movie i heard a lot about in 2016 um a lot of the things I was reading and listening to were like, this is a movie maybe not a lot of people have seen, but this is really a great movie. Yeah, I did. I did watch it in 2016. I'm, I'm trying to remember. This is terrible. I can't remember. I know I watched it right after it came out. Terrible thing is I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or on video or not. I think I saw it in the theater, though. That, that, that seems to me to be kind of part of my memory of it. And I would have noticed it. Um, well, probably because of reviews, of course. Um, I'm a little bit aware of the director, but uh um, I'm, I'm a sucker for almost anything with Jeff Bridges in it. So, uh, I was, I was all over it. So maybe let's talk about, um, I was actually curious about the, the there's sort of two people who are looked at as kind of behind this film. Um, one of them I'm more aware of, although I, I'm not somebody who, who, uh, follows his work. And that is the, the writer Taylor Sheridan, mm-hmm. who is now basically like runs TV. Like he has, so he has like, 10 shows on on uh cbs paramount um uh the whole yellowstone and everything that's spot i looked at his filmography today and his television filmography is just all of these shows connected to this big universe of 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 westerns are you is is taylor sheridan somebody that you're aware of that's um i realize that we're, we're getting further afield from film but i'm kind of curious because he's a he's a big deal right now in the entertainment industry yeah and this this is fairly early in his writing career um the only other film of his um, that he wrote that i'm familiar with is uh, sicario which is another very very good film and he also did the sequel to sicario which i've not seen uh he actually has a bit part in higher hell uh, in hell or high water he's one of the cowboys moving the cattle but no this the, I, I i did not really know much about him uh, i also know the script was originally called uh comment uh, uh uh but yeah that's about all i know you've you've added to my knowledge already yeah. uh, well and this was a this was a famously a blacklist script are you familiar with the blacklist yes i am yes so <laughs> uh, so for people who don't know there i think this comes out every year there's um it's a list put together by by film execs and i think the people who read for film execs and it's a list of the best unproduced scripts in hollywood and this i think like like was at the top of the blacklist uh in the early 2010s so uh very often those very often films will get on the black scripts will get on the blacklist and never get made but very often blacklist scripts if you look like six seven eight years later somebody figures out often it's because they're hard to imagine how you would make it um mm-hmm. they get made and often they're some of the big uh some of the big or some of the great movies of their of of their year so this this was this script has that pedigree um how about david mckenzie he's somebody i have no idea who this is yeah i i've only seen one previous uh, mckenzie film it's one of it i think it's his second film called young adam with you and mcgregor and tilda swinton um uh 
I see people have a very high opinion of startup, uh, but I've, I've never seen that. And he's generally considered kind of unclassifiable. His films, his films tend to push against uh, easy generic definitions. So it's interesting you identified, we could say Hell or High Water is kind of a Western, but it's it's kind of a number of other things as well. And so in that sense, it seems a little bit, from what I know, it's, it's typical of his atypicality. But he's a Scottish director, and it's interesting he's chosen to work in, in the U.S. several times. Yeah, that that is, I mean, because this this actually feel, feels like such an American film. It's interesting to think that this director is uh, uh, is is Scottish. Well, it's actually one of the things I'm interested in was, you know, I have mentioned two genres already, but the next thing I have in my notes is actually yet another genre. Um, and this one's a little bit of a stretch, but it's more about how the story functions, um, that this movie functions kind of as a mystery a little bit, but mm-hmm. not about who or how, because we see who and how, but about why. Yeah. So we see them hitting these banks and we're following um, the uh, the Texas Marshals, um, Alberto and Marcus, and they're trying to figure out who, but they're also more thinking about why. And even when you get to the end of the film, it's that, that great moment where, where Jeff Bridges is like, I know you did this, but the thing I can't figure out is why none of this doesn't make sense. Um, and, and what's great about this script is they hold back the why, and you get it in such small pieces that you can get to the, I got to the end of the first viewing of this and it's like, I kind of get what happened. I mean, I get in, in a big sense what happened, but I was very confused. And then I watched the movie a second time and it was like, Oh, and, and I feel like, Oh, this is actually really well constructed because it's all there. It just comes, there is, there's very few moments of kind of exposition dump to say, let us explain this. Other than when they meet with the lawyer, he explains uh, quite a bit of it if you're paying attention to him. Yeah, I, and, and you know, Sam, I, I love films that uh, we've, t- this is a theme we've struck before. I, I love films that treat the audience with intelligence. And so films that make you work a little bit and, and even films that make you wonder, well, wait a minute, did I miss something? Uh, and then you got to kind of wait and, and, and hope that it's hope that it's coming. The other thing I think is great about the film is, yes, you see who and how, but you really don't understand until about halfway through that it's Toby and not Tanner that's driving things because it looks like it's Tanner. But then you realize, no, this is all uh, this is all in Toby. And then the way the two brothers slowly become individuated at the same time that you see that they really have this deep emotional bond. I think that's one of the other things to me is really interesting and kind of uh, uh, special about the film is the way their relationship uh, is developed over the course of the, uh, the robberies. Well, yeah. I mean, I would, I would oddly put this on a list of like great movies about brothers Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because uh, I, mean, I, I have a brother myself. We we've never hit a bunch of Texas Midland banks, <laughs> but I, this movie, you know, I think about relationship. I think about um, all of the time you spend with the two of them together and uh, like I said, uh, this movie holds up really well to a second watch um, because you, you you pay more attention to little things that they say, to little interactions, to the the sort of the nature of older brother, younger brother, even the way that they talk about their parent. I mean, there's almost nothing about their parents, but there's enough there to know like this childhood was rough and it wasn't great. And uh and even the little bit that they say about the about their father and uh, how Tanner finally dealt with that situation that they I think other scripts, other movies would overplay that stuff. Mm-hmm. And this you get 
kind of one mention of it and then we're and then we move on um, the other thing that that uh, that jumped out at me, and I, I want to do a little bit of thinking about uh, some some years here, because this is uh, such a a movie so deeply connected to like the two thousand eight financial crisis. I mean, it, but at the same time, it's about the fact that that is one big event that is indicative of things that have happened forever. But uh, this felt like driving around in you know. 2000 well 16 2012 it just it, it I mean you you just see all the like um without too much talk about it although if you're paying attention there's plenty of talk about it i mean you just see the 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 landscape in terms of rundown houses closed businesses if you look at every sign every billboard the first I think the first words you see on the screen, and I forgot to write down all of it, but in the, this this movie has a phenomenal opening shot that tracks for mm-hmm. a long time, and the camera's spinning. But you go by a piece of graffiti that says mm-hmm. something about three tours in Iraq, and uh, I forget but, what the but, second part is, but, but yeah, no, but, but no bailout for people like us. Yes, yes, three tours in Iraq, but no bailout for people like us. Yeah, and, and to me, that's one of the great things the film does, and that is that it literally gives you its message on billboards. Um, you get billboards that say debt relief, uh, in debt, easy credit, fast cash when you need it. But, but none of that feels obtrusive or heavy handed. It's almost like an intertitle in a silent film, but because it's so clearly part of the landscape, you don't, it doesn't strike you as heavy handedness by the part of the filmmakers. You just say, well, they're really capturing what this moment feels like economically for the people who live there. Yeah. I mean, in, 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 in lots of ways, this felt like a uh, a late bush era film um you know that that comes out at the then kind of the waning days of the obama era um because i think about even that 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 line about um about three tours in iraq and you look at these two guys and you think like huh i wonder i i, I had the thought of when i was when i was watching uh tanner on top of the mountain sharpshooting i'm like was he in the military was mm-hmm. like although although i know his uh thinking about his his life story it's like okay well how does some of that stuff line up if he's been in jail for this long and things like that but but you sort of wonder about like okay what uh what promises were made to this guy too that didn't that didn't pan out and that didn't pay off um and they don't talk about it and um this connects it to one of the films which is so spiritually related to this film and it's part of why I love Hell or High Water is one of my favorite movies of this century is the Coen Brothers No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. and yeah. this is the and I, I I read a couple reviews that that actually panned this movie because of that, and I I totally disagree. I think that's actually the strength of it is that Taylor Sheridan clearly loves some Cormac McCarthy and is like I kind of want to do my version of a movie like that, but this is a very different movie. But in No Country, you have people who have. Uh, come back from Vietnam, although they don't really talk about it much, but if you're paying attention, it's there. And there is this sense of like kind of trying to make your way in the world. And this, this is, so this is in the shadow of all of that as uh, and in the shadow of, of, I think, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and things like that. So without being heavy handed about it, I feel like it, it, the setting is so powerfully put together. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I, and I saw a few reviews that were more complimentary about it, just sort of saying, this is, 
this is no country for old men if you just do it a little bit differently. You know, so if the, if the, the, the Tommy Lee Jones character had a little more humor about him than, 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 like the Jeff Bridges character does. So I, I think that's a great pairing, actually. So even though I don't plan to do No Country for Old Men next week, I would tell our viewers right now, if you haven't seen No Country for Old Men, by all means, uh, watch it. That is a great movie. Another thing I would say about this movie, so so the, the fact that I feel like this movie is so rooted in events of 2008 and how those things play out, I was thinking about another thing with 2008, um, which has is is exterior to this movie, but if you read reviews of Hell or High Water, you can't find a review that doesn't mention this. So in, in 2008, two very, I'm not saying great movies, but significant movies come out that shape the landscape of movies going forward. That's the year that both the dark Knight and iron man come out. So the first mm-hmm. Marvel movie and every review you read of this movie talks of sets it against the landscape of everything else that's come out in 2016 and how this is this very different thing. Now, what's interesting is, if you look at the year before 2008, 2007, you get No Country for Old Men. You also get another movie that pairs well with this, which is There Will Be Blood, oh, about yeah. the oil industry and oh, and, and, and people, um, the competition in the oil industry leading to people either making great fortunes or losing the possibility of, of livelihood. So so I feel like, like that is such a magic moment where and it is kind of a dividing line in some ways. 2007 is is a such a great year for uh for for movies like that and then in 2008 we get the kickoff of where we're headed and again i don't know if you noticed that in reviews but every review talked about sequels superheroes franchises all of these things and then this movie stands in contrast to that yeah yeah um so I think it's interesting to think about this movie as uh, I mean, we can think about these different genres, think about it as a bank robbery movie um, because it does definitely uh, it's it's in conversation with Bonnie and Clyde with gun crazy with things like that. Um, One of the big things that I realized must be a theme of all of these, which makes a, a lot of human sense is that there's always the question in a bank robbery, bank robbery movie of violence, right? Because Bank robberies aren't, by definition, violent. Mm-hmm. But then there is the there that is always this like Rubicon line of like, um, so so in, I think mm-hmm. in all three of those movies, Gun Crazy, Bonnie and Clyde, and this, we see, I'm not going to call them nonviolent uh, bank robberies because you're pulling a gun on someone, <laughs> but violence isn't actually it's threatened but not used, and we yeah. see that successful, and then we see the moment where guns are actually fired and that that shifts the temperature of the movie in a kind of way. Yeah. And, and you also see um, an, another way in which it relates to Bonnie and Clyde more so than gun crazy um, is, is you see this move from the comical first attempt to rob the bank. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you actually even have a parallel to the bank that's failed in Bonnie, in, uh, right. Bonnie and Clyde, where you have the bank that's, yeah, that's, that's locked up. But, you know, when they, when they make the attempt at the, uh, at, at the first bank, I love the way the teller, uh, played by the great character actress, Dale Dickey, uh, says, you all are new at this, I'm guessing. Yes. Uh, and, and yeah, so Tanner may be a hardened criminal, but he doesn't appear to have a lot of experience in, in, robbing, in robbing banks. So, but, but again, you get that, you get that progression 
You know, so you have that scene where no guns are fired, and then you have the scene when guns are fired, and then you have the scene when people actually get killed. So the thing that just keeps getting escalated. Yeah, and and I also realize as I've been watching a lot of these movies with you, and then just some other movies on my own in in this vein. Um, it seems obligatory that after somebody gets killed, a character needs to say it was either them or me. <laughs> like, like I think that that's like, that must be a law that every movie because, but that's also an important line of like, I did this, but like, like that is, that is the beginning of justification mm-hmm. is like, like, like they put me in a position where it was them or me. And uh, and, and then I'm going to do that. Right. So, um, but, but it is, it is funny if you're listening for it, you can hear that line in every movie that has this, you know, because, because that, that is the, the moment of that sort of flip over into violence. Um, I also, um, think the, uh, the whole idea of like a planned robbery or heist versus an impromptu robbery yeah. that we get both of those in here, right? Like that, um, and this is where we start to see the difference between Toby and Tanner that like, uh, and th- and it's, it's one of the great things that we learn about it more through Jeff Bridges than we do through the brothers that he just, he keeps looking at it and he's like, you know, these aren't, these aren't tweakers. These aren't people who are just like grabbing cash. It's like, there's a method to what they're doing. They're hitting these banks. They're only take <clears throat> only taking what's in the drawer. They seem to know that the Texas Midland banks don't have security like there's all of the security tapes there's all of these very planned things and then you see tanner do the one robbery on his own um which becomes this thing which kind of propels them into a um uh a different direction because that gives the the rangers a little bit more uh more information so you have those two different types and i feel like um in uh in bonnie and clyde we get we get uh well, there's not a lot of planning that they do in there, uh, but there is the the sort of just impromptu. I'm going to walk in and do this versus um, a little bit more thought. And then Gun Crazy, we have the big heist that they plan at the end where they even get jobs and all of that versus, um, you know, just walking in and and taking an opportunity. But but that that's kind of an essential trope in any crime film, right? Where either the meticulously planned operation goes awry because a factor has emerged that they didn't take into account uh, or somebody messes up. And so uh, to, to me, that's, I, I, I like their variation on that particular, particular trope. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if Tanner could just restrain himself and not go across the street to hit the wrong bank, uh, that wouldn't have caused the complications it, it causes. I, I also have to point out um, one of the wonderful things about the, the plotting, both in terms of the script, but also what Toby is doing is, of course, the beautiful irony uh, that he's robbing the bank that has robbed him. Uh, and then that's the bank that ends up becoming the, uh, the trustee. Um, it's, it's, and, 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 I, and I love the line towards the end where, um, along, along those lines, where um, uh, Marcus is trying to get information out of the witnesses in the, uh, in the restaurant, right? And the one guy says, well, I watched them robbing the bank that's been robbing me for 30 years. Uh, so I, I just love this sense of kind of karmic justice uh, on uh, that they're avenged. They're kind of taking on, on Texas Midland banks. And the fact that ultimately, even though there's a lot of complications along the way, including the death of Tanner and the, and the death of, of, uh, of Marcus's partner, uh, Alberto, um, the plan works. 
You know, I mean, and, and, and that's and that isn't always the case, right? Because it, it ultimately doesn't work in Going Crazy. It ultimately doesn't work in Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, this film kind of leaves you with an open question, of course, about what's going to happen at the very end. But ultimately, Toby's plan works. And so there actually is a kind of justification. He actually does get the revenge that he's seeking. And that's that's an unusual twist on the genre, right? Because one of the things that they do is uh, they kind of split the consequences. So one brother, in a sense, has to die for the crimes they've committed, but the other brother gets away with it because ultimately, ultimately his cause is righteous. Uh, and if the plan had gone the way he wanted to, nobody would have died and it would have been kind of a clean getaway. So I love the way the film was able to kind of have its cake and eat it too in that respect. Yeah, there's so much I want to talk about there. There's there's the, the great line when I think it's when they're in the restaurant and Toby says to, to Tanner, you act like we're not going to get away with it. And Tanner says, I've never met nobody that ever got away with anything ever. So so there is this sense of like, like they're even acknowledging like this, this plans like this don't work. Like, mm-hmm. like you can plan it, you can plan it. Um, and now it's interesting. You talked about, you know, uh, uh, Tanner messing up by going, hitting that other bank. But what I love is before that, you see that Toby, as much as he's thought through everything, also makes big mistakes like when he takes the gun and just sets it on the counter and then as they're leaving the other guy just picks the gun back up and starts shooting at them and so like like toby or tanner knows more about like if we're actually gonna pull this job like we have to be we we do have to think about all of those things so um so you get you get sort of uh both of those uh both of those playing out and i i I did i do love this sense that like and this is this is part of the brothers stuff and and part of i think tanner wrestling with his past even though we don't know all of it but when they go to that trailer and and uh and tanner grabs his guns and he says this is my livelihood his rifle and that that machine gun Mm. um i think and this it's great that he doesn't say it but i think at that point he knows like Mm -hmm. i'm gonna have to there, there's a good chance I am going to have to sacrifice sacrifice myself as part of this. But I think there's also, you know, to, to jump to the very end, you know, where they talk, where uh, uh, Marcus and, and Toby are talking and they each talk about bringing each other peace. I think there is a degree to which he's like, I kind of want to bring myself peace. And, and that, that maybe comes in being done with this, you know, yeah. and, and in, in, in very big ways being done with, this life I've been leading and that that leads kind of to my destruction. And I think that stuff is um, the second time through that when they went to that trailer and he got the guns out, like it hit me a lot harder of like, Oh, he's already Toby doesn't know it, but, but Tanner knows he's already on a path. That's like, this doesn't end. I'm not the type of person who gets away with this. Toby might be, but I'm not. Well, you know, I think it's interesting, too, that um, one of Toby's other mistakes, I mean, I think the mistakes or the, the missteps that either brother makes comes out of their essential character. Um, and I think one of the deliberate mistakes, if you want to call it that, that Toby makes is leaving the $200 tip for the waitress, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is a big clue as if, as if Marcus needed any more clues. But, but that comes out of his, I mean, I mean, you feel as though Toby is essentially a good person trying to do the right thing. Uh, and so he can't help but want to help out that waitress, which kind of underscores a little bit of the Robin Hood theme uh, mm-hmm. to, to the film. There's a little bit of that in Bonnie and Clyde. There's a little bit of it here, even though they're benefiting themselves more than the general population. There's still the idea that what they're doing is um, is not out of greed, but out of a, of a sense of, of, of genuine need. I also do want to say one quick thing, though, about 
about Tanner's guns and, and the machine gun. Um, I think that is when he machine guns the posse, um, it's, I think it's really in, interesting that the film actually pulls off a moment of humor even as it's heading towards its tragic conclusion. And that to me is a very Coen Brothers moment when he stands there with that machine gun and just advances on, the, on that posse and riddles them with bullets. Uh, it's, to me, it's a very funny moment, but, and, and it works, even though it's quirky and it's not quite the mood that you're in at that point of the film. I just think it works really well. Well, and I, there is something funny about where that posse came from, that they go hit this bank, which is the most heavily armed place because they're in Texas and everybody has conceal and carry. So it's like, whenever you go anywhere, you should, you should just expect like, well, yeah, everybody's got a good, got a gun on them and the way they get lit up as they're leaving that bank is uh is kind of kind of interesting i mean to go back to something you were talking about i think it's interesting in that the meeting with the lawyer when they ask him like why are you doing this Mm -hmm. and his answer is basically like this is about the most texan thing i can think of you know to to rob from this bank that's been robbing from you and then use that money to like basically put them in a position where they don't even want to find out about you, you know, and he's, and so, so yeah. Um, One of the things that I'm, I I loved about this movie and this is more procedural stuff is after watching a series of bank robbery movies to see a couple of the meticulous things that Tanner does that seem almost over the top. Like the, the idea of they have all of these cars and they, they actually drive back to the ranch and have a backhoe and, bury the cars in the ground so it's like you're never going to trace this car because why would you ever look buried six feet under the ground for this car that we used for two jobs <laughs> um like and, and and then the other idea um that i loved was how they came up with a way to launder the money through mm-hmm. the casino, um was just like like I'm sure Sheridan had those ideas and was like, I have to write a movie where characters bury bury their cars and launder money through a, a Native American casino. Like that's such a great idea. When you when you see it, you're like, of course, it's brilliant. Well, having just recently watched Ozark, I was actually not all that yes. surprised because I thought, well, that's how you launder money. You go you go to a casino, and of course, the fact that it's that it's an Indian casino. Um, you know, kind of takes us into another area of, of the film. And that is that it, as, as is typical of a Western, it is to a large extent about conflict between, um, between Native Americans and, and whites. And so you get that obviously played out in the relationship of, uh, of, of Marcus and, and, and Alberto. Um, and then and, and, and the original title of, of, of the of the script as we mentioned earlier and then the fact that Tanner says to Toby you know we are Comanches uh, and he has that wonderful encounter with the Comanche uh, uh, fellow in in the casino uh, and you know we are we're Comanches which means that we are you know and en- enemies of everyone so the film has a really interesting relationship to the Native American uh, uh, and, and the settlers uh, both historical and contemporaneously. Well, and even right before he dies, as Tanner is standing up on or sitting up on top of that ridge, and he said he says to himself, "Lord of the Plains," which is, right. you know yeah. what they talk, yeah. and that and that's right before he uh, he gets shot himself. Yeah, I mean, I loved I loved the scene in the casino um, when they're playing poker, and 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 he, you know, and the, where the guy defines Comanche as enemy to everyone, and he says, "Well, do you know what that makes me?" And he says a Comanche, <laughs> you know, not, not an enemy, but, a, but like, I am also enemy to everyone. Um, and that sets up them. I am, I am also Lord of the Plains. Um, 
I also just loved, I love sort of really late period Western. So no country and something like this, which are also, you know, if the frontier hadn't already closed, this is about sort of the closing of the frontier, the potentially the end of the West or the cycles of the West. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get, you get some sort of different takes on that. Um, there is this, the, the great scene where, where Marcus and, uh, um, and Alberto are driving and they see the fire and there's the, mm-hmm. they talk to the cowboy and he says, it's the 21st century and I'm racing a fire to the river with a herd of cattle. It's a wonder my kids don't want to do this for a living. <laughs> and it, it is just sort of this, like, like it, this, we are actively watching ways of life die, um, you know, in, in a moment like that. And not only ways of life, but ways of life that are um, core to American mythology in terms of like, like, like what is, what does it mean for America to have been forged on the frontier and all these stories we tell about ourselves? Um, that scene struck me as, as particularly power, a powerful image of that. Yeah. And, and Marcus's comment, Marcus says, these boys is on their own, mm-hmm. right? The, 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 and, and, and I think it's more than just about this fire. It's just about, as you were saying, Sam, it's about this way of life, is 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 dying uh and and it's it's like an existential moment well and and you get the uh i think in the diner one of the the um one of the old men in the in the diner where when when marcus is in there so he even says the days of robin banks and trying to spend the money are long gone so it's it's even like what these so so we have the sort of the death of the cowboy but also you know the the death of the um the death of the bank robber the death of all of these like uh characters from the 19th even 20th century like like these things are these things are are things of the past um so there's this sense of all of this kind of dying around them and then you have uh alberto's speech kind of one of his uh one of his great moments where they're um they're talking about you know he says 150 years ago all of this was my ancestors land then uh the grandparents of these folks took it and now it's been taken from them, not by an army, but by the banks. And there is, and that's where the cyclical nature comes is like, is this the end of something? Is this something new or is this what has always happened, but it's just now happening to different people. But it, but it's, but it's happening through um, these institutions, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the, these corporate entities that, uh, that seem to have no soul. And so it's so it's a different kind of a battle, right? It used to be before it was you know my tribe against your tribe. Now it's these kind of anonymous people in, in suits who are just kind of sucking sucking things dry. So yes, it's both kind of a Alberta suggesting there's a kind of a kind of a karmic payback here, but at the same time, it's it's even worse what's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's just a great moment when they're in the. Um the non-Texas Midland bank that Tanner hits and he's talking to the teller and he sees the, the bank manager and he, Marcus says, that looks like a man that would foreclose on a house. And then he walks over to him to know like, that's, you know, that's, and, 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 and then that is coupled with the great scene at the, uh, towards the end when Toby is actually at the Texas Midland bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and the banker seems so like smug and arrogant and terrified at the same yeah. time. Um, and and yeah, like like that's because because they're they're both the frightening institution, and this is the least frightening person, and not because he seems kind, but because he seems terrified. Yeah, and I love the fact that he watches him send that fax 
He's he's going to make sure that nothing that nothing absolutely that absolutely nothing nothing go, goes wrong. Refuses to shake his hand, right? Mm-hmm. But then turns around and asks him about doing the trust. So, right, right, because he knows he'll bite at that because there's there's yeah. money to be made there, right? Um, the uh, I love the structure, and I, this is something I didn't expect. I didn't expect this movie to be structured around. Uh, we talked about brothers, but around like another set of brothers in quotes as well like i i love the marcus and alberto that, that we keep jumping back between these these two pairings trying to move through the world and 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 the fact that marcus on the verge of retirement you know and this is very no country feeling right on the verge of retirement not only is the the livelihood and way of life of the world around him seeming to come to a close but in his own on the micro level that's happening in his own life that that you know alberto even says like i know what you're doing you're trying to stretch this out as long as you can because essentially like you know what's at the other end of this job is this sort of black hole of retirement and and how are you how are you going to live when this when you don't have this i should know i should note as you as you talk about kind of alternating between the stories that one of the four nominations the film uh, got for the academy awards was editing actually um and uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm glad you mentioned No Country Old Men yet again, because um, I think that one of the tones of this film, which has, again, it has varying tones. So it's a little bit like um, Shoot the Piano Player, uh, maybe not quite as severe, but still some ton- tonal shifts. Um, but I would say that one of the overall tones is, is in fact, elegiac, uh, which is also true of No Country for Old Men. It's, it's like, it's, it's an elegy for the end of an era. It's an elegy for an end of a way of life. It's an elegy for an end of maybe a type of American character. Uh, and then it's just the el- an elegy for the end of, of the career for Marcus. But it also, the other element it has is a lot of irony because you get all this foreshadowing at the beginning uh, by Marcus. It talks about, you know, going down in a blaze of glory in a gunfight. Uh, but of course, now we know that it's, uh, that it's Alberto uh, that's going to go down in a, in a blaze of glory. Um, uh, he tells Alberto in a year's time, it's my teasing you will miss, uh, which of course, again, is ironic. He says, it's a, uh, Alberto says, it's a dangerous thing we do for a living. You're lucky to see it through to the end. Uh, and of course he does. Uh, so, so I, so I, where, but whereas Alberto does not. So I do like the fact that the film kind of sets those ironies up uh, at, at, the, at the beginning. And then, and then you see them through at the, at the end. Well, it's it's also interesting. I want to go back to a line that you said there because it's it's something that I wrote down, and it's one of the like realest and truest lines in the film, which is when when uh, uh, Marcus, who is relentless to Alberto. Now, to be fair, the movie starts with Alberto making a lot of Alzheimer's jokes about uh, yes. about Marcus. So clearly, like they do this, but like like Marcus is, crosses lots of lines where yeah. you just feel like, oh, come on, don't don't and i mean even when he says like you, you know like uh when marcus says i'm half mexican he's like oh, i'll get to those insults later when i'm finished with the indian insults um but but i actually think there is something true to the line of like in time it'll be my teasing that you miss because the next thing he says is like that's what you're gonna think about when you're standing over my grave mm-hmm. you're gonna th- because that is the nature of their relationship and i actually think as much as the it's played as these two like really really like digging into each other like they they love each other right like that's that is that in 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 a brotherly kind of way you know like i don't know how long they've been partners but you can tell it especially when alberto dies and and then and marcus is is like 
okay, this has ripped me up like nothing else in this movie has. Like he is this kind of much like Tommy Lee Jones, this like very in no country, this very calm, collected person trying to make sense out of, out of what he's dealing with. But the the one emotional piece for him is is Alberto's death. And it's and I think there is this sense of like they have they have forged and fostered uh, a, a real, I think, a, you know, aside from all the teasing, right, a real like like powerful relationship. So I, so I think that pays off with when 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 Alberto gets shot and you realize like um, the impact that that has on Marcus. So so that line about the teasing like really hit me hard the second time. But you know the 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 digs are so deep and uh, so on PC. I mean, yeah. they're they're, they're kind of some of them are really kind of cringeworthy, and you really wonder why why Alberto doesn't doesn't fight back um, harder. For example, you know, I I mean, he says things like he describes soccer as a as a Comanche sport invented by Aztecs kicking around skulls for example you know some pretty awful stuff and yet you know it's interesting that Alberto is actually um declares himself as a, as a Catholic uh and so you get you get a little bit of that tension going on as well well and and, and there is in, in that that scene where he's talking about soccer actually it's it's right after the my the the teasing line when he says like you know uh you'll be thinking about this at my funeral and he says something like that day can't come soon enough to which marcus says there you go like like he's like come on like like this is what we do this is not me doing something to you like please swing back at me i think it's because he knows it's what Mm -hmm. he's gonna miss too when he retires he's gonna he's no longer gonna get to have this kind of sparring uh uh, sparring relationship i also love the the um uh it it creates one of the funniest moments of this movie is when they're driving to when they they realize the bank and post was hit and he says let's put on some uh, i forget what he says about what like it's like traveling music or something like that and they turn on the radio and clearly uh uh Alberto has had it on like a Christian rock station and he's like, I, I can't listen to this. It's such, that was such a funny moment because you also see him earlier watching the, the sort of televangelist um, mm-hmm. and, and that, that setup and payoff was extremely funny, which again, to this, this sense of like tonal shifts, like you're not expecting jokes. And then when they come, they hit really hard because everything else seems so tense and so intense in this movie. Um, another scene that I think uh, really hit me hard was when Toby goes to visit his son, mm-hmm. well, his sons, but he talks with his his oldest son. Um, and again, this just felt like uh, just great, great like dialogue, screenwriter stuff. Like you can imagine when he thought about sort of what uh, what Toby was going to say when he's sort of like, "You're going to hear lots of stuff about what we did." And the, the son's like, don't worry, I won't believe any of it. He's like, no, no, believe it. It's all true. Just yeah. don't be like us. Yeah. Um, because there is the, I mean, at that moment, there is this sense, and this ties into maybe where I want to head here, which is to the, the final confrontation scene. There is this sense that in the same way Tanner kind of knows he's not making it out of this, um, that Toby sort of, I think he also wants to be done to a certain degree. There is, there is this sense of like, we are building something. So when we get caught, it is still, they still can't touch the money because of the trust and they can't touch the ranch because of the trust. So, so I almost feel like 
the Toby we get at the that we see at the end is almost like a like a ghost. Like it's almost like he's walking around thinking mm. I wasn't supposed to make it this far. It like my plan wasn't supposed to work to the point where I'm still supposed to be here. And uh so it's almost like he's haunting that ranch in some ways because he doesn't live there. He's doing work there and things like this, but he's got to figure out what what he does next. So that scene with his son, I think, is really hits uh hits home well. Yeah, and, and the film avoids um any kind of uh happy ending with the ex-wife. You know, we don't we don't know what he's done, we don't know what's happened to them, but I I, I like the fact that what he's done really is for the boys. It's that the, there's no there's no opportunity for them to get back together. When you know when Marcus calls her his wife, she says ex-wife. And it's quite clear that whatever he's done, he cannot make up for with her. So you're, I think you're right. He really, he hasn't been building a life that he ever expected to inhabit. Uh, he's building a life for the boys, but not for himself. And then that leads right into that, that, that final scene when it's all, uh, when it's all resolved and, and Marcus is no longer a ranger and they're just two guys talking on a porch. And that's where Marcus gets into like the, the, the question of why, and you know, that's kind of where we, where we started this. And he's like, if your brother had made it, I would have gotten it. I would have seen him spending all of that money so that he could go rob more banks because he, for him, like, this is what he did. This is what he loved. He loved shooting Alberto. He loved doing that. But he's like, you don't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting because as good of a lawman as Marcus seems, he has not understood, like, nobody has uncovered the real, like, um, the real plan, at, even remotely. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. Which, which, which is actually interesting, Sam, because in a way, isn't that sort of how corporate schemes work? Mm-hmm. Like corporations have done this thing, they've moved money around and they've, they've managed to kind of avoid detection for a long time. It's almost like that's what Toby has done. So it is, it is both a bank robbery movie, but it's also kind of a corporate scheme movie at the, at the same time. And this is not the kind of crime that Marcus has encountered before. Right, right, right. And so that is also like a, a changing world kind of thing. It's like, yeah, I, I Tanner commits the crimes. Marcus understands Toby commits yes. ones that he doesn't. Um, so there's this great, and then, you know, after they, after they meet the ex-wife and the kids and they're walking towards the cars, uh, Marcus says, this is going to haunt you for the rest of your days. And it's going to haunt me too. Mm-hmm. There is this sense of like, like, you know what you did and that's going to haunt you. I don't know why you did it. And that's going to haunt me. Uh, and then we get to the the final lines about if you stop by, uh, maybe I'll give you peace. And, uh, and Marcus says, maybe I'll give you peace too. Yeah. And it's kind of haunting because like, what does give you peace mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, does it, does it mean put each other to rest in, right, right. in terms of like rest our minds or, you know, what's it, what's, uh, implied there is, is that we, we didn't get the shootout that, uh, that you would expect at that moment. Right. Because in a, a certain, a certain way of telling stories would be like, well, Toby, even though he did this for these reasons, like Toby's a criminal and we're thinking about like old code stuff deserves to die, but we don't even get the shootout at all. Right. We just get this sense that these guys might meet again and talk more and maybe there'll be gunplay. Maybe not. It's, it's, it's I kind of love that ending. Yeah, and of course, you know, we don't get the shootout because the ex-wife and the and the kids show up, and mm-hmm. 
that's that's what's they've driven the entire plot. So it seems appropriate that they should be the ones that actually add this final little complication that that forestalls any kind of a of a resolution. So okay, so one of the things that I find interesting about this movie, and I wrote this in my notes because I really thought a lot about. Um, again, I think this pairs so nicely with No Country um, that even though this movie has all this ambiguity and all this stuff is like this is far less bleak than Cormac McCarthy at the same time. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's like the plan worked and you feel like, well, these, these kids have a future and, mm-hmm. uh, and Toby has accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. So even if, even if he was to get shot at that moment, it's like, I actually think he would have peace. You know, it's like, I, I did the thing that I'm responsible to, to do, which is to, you know, he has that speech about poverty, right? And he says, poverty is like a disease mm-hmm, and it gets passed mm-hmm. down from generation to generation. And and what I want to do is to not pass that along. And so he has accomplished his big uh, mission, you know, in, in, in the movie. So, so in that way, the, this movie, like it, it can't touch McCarthy for bleakness, I think. And I don't know enough about Sheridan to know, like maybe he has, does not have a Cormac McCarthy worldview. Uh, Cause when I read McCarthy books, um, they're, he's he's bleak and that's what i love about him but it's there you're not you're not finding happy endings in those books yeah with mccarthy you're much more in the uh in the realm of uh of king lear tragedy you know all is dark and cheerless uh yes. here elegiac is not quite the same thing as tragic so yeah yeah do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie yeah i i, I okay i want to i want to go back to the Coen brothers one more time and suggest that another way of thinking about the uh the marcus character is that it's what it, and this is not my own thought. This came from uh, James uh, Bernardinelli, whose reviews I enjoyed. Uh, he says, this is what the, it would have been like if the dude had become a Texas Ranger. Right. <laughs> so, I think that, but, he, but also, there's a little bit of Sherlock Holmes there. Um, the other bit of trivia that I uncovered, and maybe you saw this too, Sam, is that the first bank that they hit is in Archer City. And uh, Archer City is where Larry McMurdy uh, grew up. Oh, uh, and Larry McBurdy, who of course you know wrote *Lonesome Dove*, uh, he also wrote *The Last Picture Show*, which was about the the death of old Texas, and it was set in Archer City and filmed there in 1971 with, of course, Jeff Bridges. So, okay. Uh, so that so that's the other movie we could have paired with this, the Peter Bogdanovich *Last Picture Show*, which is a really fine film. Uh, so anyway, so it's a little bit of kind of insiderness there and so i'm going to stretch a point a little bit and just say that just as when we watch some of the new wave stuff especially uh shoot the piano player there were these inside film jokes uh references so there's a little bit of that going on in this film as well well and and i think you know to 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 talk about that i think even some of the the casting in this movie is interesting um uh ben Foster, who plays yeah. Tanner Howard, um, I think he's great in this movie. I think he came out of like Disney Channel, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like stuff, yeah. right? And then, and then, um, more importantly, Chris Pine. Yeah. Uh, the first time I ever saw Chris Pine was playing Captain Kirk in a big Star Trek movie, and so like, like Pine felt like he was on the path to being like the other Chris's, you know, Pratt mm. and, um, and Evans and Hemsworth and mm. Pine Pine took a little, little, little bit of a turn here and he's great in this movie. I mean, Bridges gets nominated for an Oscar for this. Um, but I, I thought Chris Pine is kind of mesmerizing in this movie and he doesn't feel, uh, this doesn't feel like, uh, um, uh, kind of the way I saw him as captain Kirk or things like that. So, 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 
in the in the sense that the um movie landscape of 2016 is going in one direction this movie zigs in another direction and so does chris pine i think and uh and i actually really like this direction for him as an actor yeah i mean he's uh he's never hard on the eyes uh but this is not this is not a film that relies on his movie star looks at all. So yeah, it seems like I think one critic mentioned he he's got a he could have a new career more as a kind of a character actor, uh, mm-hmm. very different from his previous roles. So I thought they were both very impressive. Yeah, yeah, and I and I thought they even though they don't look similar, they worked as brothers to me. Like I bought I bought that all of that stuff you know yeah, entirely. Yeah. Uh, and then there's that there's that that great weird scene at the gas station where you think oh, Tanner yes. is like the Tanner is the the embodiment of menace and then you realize that Toby when he takes those guys out you're just like oh Toby has has this this rage in him and this pain in him that comes out in those ways and then at that point you're like anything can happen yeah but I I think the other thing that that says is most obviously Toby has got Tanner in him but then you could also say based on what Tanner does at the end that Tanner has some Toby in him as well. Absolutely. Because I really endorse your idea that when he grabs those rifles, he knows that he's going down for the last time. And that is that is his plan. Right. Because when they stop to get it to for Toby to get in the other car, Toby says, like, aren't you coming? And yeah. he's basically like, I'm on another path. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah. No, abs- absolutely. And and there's a moment when they're in the car. I think it's when they're going towards the last day's worth of jobs, um, where Tanner says, um, it's a good thing that you're doing. Yeah. And Toby says, it's a good thing that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and there is this sense that like, I mean, it's so weird to say Tanner gets redeemed in this movie mm-hmm. because like, I don't know what I want to make of that, but he does in, in, in like in the world of this narrative, like he's somebody who wasn't there when his mother died, wasn't there, like, like had kills his father, has this terror. They have these terrible relationships and all, and you don't see him, you don't see him do much that you're, uh, uh, to make you feel good about him. But then you start to see these glimpses. And, and honestly, what he does is he's the reason that this plan ultimately ends up working, Yeah, yeah. you know, is, is what he's willing to do. Uh, what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? <laughs> Well, this one just uh, kind of uh, played right into my, I, I mean, this, this one just, you know, unavoidable to me. Um, this week, uh, Jean-Luc Godard died at the age of 91. And uh, we've done some Godard before. We did Breathless. But I feel as though uh, to honor his memory, we need to do another Godard. Uh, and so I want to do, I, I think in some ways it's an atypical Godard, but it's also one of his best films. And that is 1963's Contempt which is a widescreen color film, uh, which in some ways is a Hollywood film and in some ways is another play on the new wave. Uh, so it's one of my favorite Godard films. So uh, it has Bridget Bardot in it, which is not what you expect from a new wave film and Jack Allen's and Fritz Lang. Uh, so anyway, it's- uh, I'm, I'm so excited because I was just reading, I was reading about Godard yesterday um, after his passing and I and I read a big, a big thing on contempt. It didn't, say much about what happens in the movie but sort of around it and i and as i was reading that i thought i gotta go watch this movie so the fact that you put it on the list makes it great because that's what i was going to do this weekend anyhow so and it is uh to again another shameless plug for the criterion channel it is on the criterion channel fantastic barrett thank you so much for uh for recommending this film this was this was really really great and i would i would if you if you watch this movie i would say 
watch it one more time. I thought I got so much more out of the second viewing of this film. Um, it's, it's really well constructed. The performances are great. This was really interesting to have this conversation with you. Uh, it speaks to so many films that I, that I enjoy and things that we've been watching. So thank you for recommending this. Uh, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about contempt in the video store.